This morning our scripture comes from Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. One day, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan the accuser came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I have been going back and forth across the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all of the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, Job fears God, but not without good reason. You have always protected him, protected him in his home and his property from harm. You have made him prosperous in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but take everything away he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want to with him. With him, everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Well, we come to this famous story this morning of Job. And uh, just so that you know, we will, uh, believe it or not, in the next few minutes, work through this entire book. Uh, so don't fret, we'll get through it quickly, and yet we'll get through it uh, somewhat thoroughly uh, as we do. I know that you have been in a situation that I've been in and that many people have been in, and the situation is this. You stand or sit in front of someone who has encountered a difficult trial, a burden, a pain, a heartache. Perhaps it is the loss of marriage. Perhaps it is the loss of a friend. Perhaps it is the death of a family member. Perhaps it is the loss of a job. And you stand there. Your marriage is intact. You haven't lost family members at that time. Uh, your job is good. And you wonder, what should I say? Words seem to escape you in times like that. You don't know how to address such a person. And so perhaps you say things and then later think, oh, that was so awkward. And I don't know if that was helpful at all. And I'm just at a loss as to what to say. Well, Job went through incredible difficulty. As has been read, he is described as blameless upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And you should know it's God who's saying this about him. This isn't Job describing himself. This is Job being described by God himself. And so God describes Job that way. Job had 10 children. He had 11,000 heads of livestock of different kind. He had many servants. He was described as the greatest of all the people in the East. His children got along well together. It's hard when you have two for them to get along. He had ten who liked to be together. So much so that on a regular basis, Scripture says, they had family get-togethers. They would host them at different of the kids' homes. And Job would come to those family get-togethers and bless them and pray for them. Job regularly offered sacrifices to God on behalf of his family. He was the quintessential dad, Job, uh, this tremendous guy. And then out of the blue, God holds a staff meeting in heaven, and uh, 
these folks show up. And what's surprising is that Satan himself shows up at God's staff meeting. If you read scripture with any sense of question, uh, any sense of wonder, you ought to wonder why God shows, uh, has a staff meeting and Satan shows up. But he does, and Satan shows up at the staff meeting. Uh, Verses 6 through 8, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, and God and Satan have a conversation. And then what is interesting, and if anything you ask questions in Scripture is difficult for you to understand, here it is. Satan says, where have you, uh, the Lord says, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil? All of us in the room want God to describe us like that, don't we? Here is my servant, fill in the blank. He's blameless, he's upright, he loves the Lord, he turns away from evil, that's my man. But none of us want God to say, have you considered to Satan when he uses those words to describe us. None of us hold our hands up and say, okay, put me in. And and so we are naturally troubled when we read this. Why would God take this godly man and offer him up to Satan? When Satan is looking for somebody to test, why would God choose Job? Many of you have played sports in your life. And if you play sports, you understand this maybe without understanding it. If you play sports, here's what you understand. If you were watching the World Series, this happened. All right, so we're watch- I'm watching the World Series. Don't usually watch it, but Greg Holland's playing. And if Greg Holland's playing in the World Series and he's from McDowell County, I'll tune in, right? So I tune in hoping that he'll get to go into this final game, uh, pitch maybe uh, the saving inning, get another save under his belt, number two in the uh, American League this year for saves. So this, is, this guy's doing great. And so I'm thinking this is going to be good. But then the guy from Hickory gets put in, Bumgarner. He played against Greg Holland in high school. Bumgarner uh, gets put in for the Giants. He's pitching, and he pitches uh, just flawlessly, inning after inning after inning after inning. It gets to the eighth inning. Uh, the Giants are leading 3-2. to two. The question is, uh, will they take Bumgarner out or will they leave him in? I mean, this guy's pitching, but after all, it's the ninth inning in the World Series. Should they leave him in? And so you hear the commentators back and forth, back and forth. They're going to have to make a decision now, they say, in the eighth inning. While he is pitching, are they going to sub somebody in? And the Giants do what? The manager of the Giants, in essence, says to the Royals, have you considered my good pitcher Bumgarner? He's going in the ninth. Oh, but he's tired. No, he's going to pitch the ninth. And Bumgarner does. We call that being clutch. Right? Being clutch. Here's what God said about Job. 
And I want to say to you this morning, I firmly believe this, that God values or has a higher opinion of your ability to endure trials than many of you do. God said to Satan, Job is what? He's clutch. Job is clutch. Job will stand the test. Here's the problem. When the test comes, Job wasn't privy to that conversation. All right? So when the test came, Job wasn't privy to that conversation. He had no idea that that conversation took place. And so what happens, Satan attacks Job Two times in the next chapter, this phrase occurs. And this phrase occurs in every person's life who goes through a trial. Now, there was a day. You know that day, don't you? If you've gone through a trial, you know that day when you get the phone call and a family member who once was alive isn't. A person who once was perceived to be healthy isn't. Uh, Those days come. Now there was a day. And a servant comes to Job and says, The Sabaeans fell on the oxen, and when they did, they killed them, and they're all gone. And while he's telling that story, another servant comes and says, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sheep. And while that servant is telling that story, a third servant shows up and says, The Chaldeans came and they took all the camels and they killed all the servants who were taking care of the camels. And while that servant was still talking to Job, a fourth servant came and said, A strong wind came down. All your kids were gathered together at uh, the eldest son's house. And when they did... Uh, The strong wind destroyed the house, and all your children have died. Whatever you've been through, none of it compares to this. Whatever you've experienced in one day, in one day to go through this, how did Job respond? He tore his robe and shaved his head. Signs of grief. He was grief-stricken. He was a godly man, and he was a clutch player, but he was human, and he was grief-stricken, and he tore his robe and shaved his head, and then the very next thing he did is mind-blowing. Unless you're privy to the conversation God had with Satan, he fell on his face, and he worshiped the Lord. Wow. He fell on his face, and he worshiped God, and here's what he said. Uh, Job one twenty one. naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job saying? This is the beginning point for every one of us in the room. Please hear me, many successful uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class Americans Everything you have, God gave you. Amen? Do you believe that? Everything you have. Oh, but Jerry, I worked and I did this. Who gave you the mind to be able to work? Who gave you the healthy body? Every child you have, God gave you. Everything. 
Job went back to that. He said, naked I came into this world. Naked I will leave this world. What does that mean? Anything I get between point A and point Z, God gives. And if he gives it, guess what he can do with it? He can take it. He's God. We don't like that in the Western world. Not at all. We're self-made. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, Americans. We believe that we're entitled to our health. We believe we're entitled to our wealth. We believe we're entitled to our sanity. We believe we're entitled to our houses. We believe we're entitled to our cars. We believe we're entitled to our scholarships. We believe we're entitled, and the list goes on and on and on. And what Job says is, I'm not entitled to anything. God gave, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, our sense of I have to have, what I have is absolutely mind-blowing, and it bends us in times like this. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He's clutch. Then there's chapter 3. Unless you think that means ignoring the problem, chapter 3 is all about what? Job moaning and mourning and regretting that he was ever born. How can you do that and not charge God with wrong? Be real. We talked about that last week. Be real about what you need when you pray. Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then there are three friends who trek across the desert to find Job. Incidentally, Job occurred during the time of Abraham. It's simply placed here in Scripture, but this is during the time of Abraham. And so these three friends trek across the desert to find their friend. They've heard of his plight. This is the greatest man in the East, and they happen to be friends with him. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so for the next uh, uh, 24 chapters, chapter 4, I told you we'd cover this whole book quickly, chapter uh, Chapters 4 through 27, there's a series of six speeches times three. So 18 speeches, they talk, and then Job responds. And it goes back and forth. And here's where we get bad advice. Bad advice number one comes from Eliphaz. What does Eliphaz say? Well, you must have done something to deserve this. That's Eliphaz's deal. Uh, Job, if this happened to you, uh, you must have done something to deserve this. Eliphaz focuses on justice and purity. God is just and he is pure. We'd all say amen to that, right? Job 4.17, Eliphaz says, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job 5.17, Eliphaz says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. In other words, Job, this is all your fault. But you see, Eliphaz wasn't privy to the conversation God had in his staff meeting between him and Lucifer. And God thinks more highly of Job than does Eliphaz. And so it goes. None of his friends are privy to that conversation. Where is Eliphaz getting his stuff? Well, in Mesopotamia, that land between the rivers... Uh, There was Mesopotamian wisdom, and Mesopotamian wisdom had one central unifying idea. You do wrong, and God will nail you, period. 
All right? That was Mesopotamian wisdom. And in Mesopotamian wisdom, there was absolutely no caveat, no place for what if a righteous man does wrong or a righteous man uh, uh, suffers. In their idea, the only reason you suffer is because you do wrong. And so they had no possibility of suffering for a good person. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And we thought health and prosperity gospel was new. No, it's Mesopotamian wisdom. You do, you suffer, you must have blown it. And so these guys turn on the TV and find the, the Dr. Fields and the Oprahs and come riding in with their advice. They find the TV preachers with all of their wonderful smile and see me a thousand bucks and life will be great. They find all of that and they come rolling into Job's house. And so Eliphaz says, you must have done something to deserve this. That's bad advice for hard times. Well, then there's Bildad. I call him Babylon Bildad. He's the youngest one, and uh, younger people tend to know more than older people. I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, I saw a sign years ago that said, hire teenagers while they still know everything. And so, so there's, uh, there's this thing that seems to, and I love you teenagers who flank the sides here, it's just that you tend to know a lot. And so... Uh, that tends to be the reality. Uh, Bildad is babbling Bildad. He's taken evidently uh, a Bible and religion class in college, and once he did, he learned everything you needed to know about God in that one class. He took his doctrinal grid, he laid it down over it, and now that he knows a little bit of doctrine, Bildad is going to set Job straight. That's Bildad. Uh, Bildad's bad advice is this. If you knew the ways of God, you wouldn't question what has happened. But Bildad would never say it that way. He would say, if you knew the ways of God, you would never question what happened. Right. Why? Because people who adhere and and, and go by a, a doctrinal grid that goes over everything, that doctrinal grid stands like an iron fence around their hearts. You see, you never really know who they really are because they have a grit. And so when they respond to you, they don't feel much. Why? Because the grid takes care of that. The grid can then avoid avoid feelings. Just, okay, this is what happened because God is this and this is this and this is this and that's that. And that's the reason that this became this and that became that and there we go. And I've encountered these people and when they encounter someone who is suffering, often, That's where they go, often. And honestly, I'll say this, I guess with love in my heart, I want to punch them in the face. I do. Who do you think you are to take the almighty, infinite God and reduce him to a human theological grid that causes you to distance yourself from somebody suffering because you can throw your theological arrows at them? That's what Bildad does. How bad is it? He calls Job a windbag. 8-2, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? I mean, bottom line, Bildad, you're younger than Job. 
But babbling Bildads? Oh no, their theological supremacy often, often causes them to be able to usurp all decent rules of relationship. That's what happens. And then he says, does God, does the Almighty, Bildad says, and then verse 8 of chapter 8, I love it, for inquire please of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. He says, I've done my homework, Job. I've looked at the fathers, and the fathers say this, do you not know what the fathers say? Puffed up with knowledge, eaten up with pride and smugness is Bildad. If you knew God better, you just wouldn't question him. And then there's Zophar. Zophar is the realist, all right? He's the realist. By the way, most people who tell you they're realist are really pessimist. It's their rationalistic way of saying, I'm a pessimist. I'm a realist, they say. They always find the glass half empty, and that's Zophar. What's Zophar's bad advice? Well, you should have seen it coming. That's his bad advice. You should have seen it coming. After all, life's terrible. Bad things happen. You know, and that's what he says. Uh, And then he thinks, well, I'll hone in. I'll I'll find something. So he digs around, and Zophar is convinced that having money is a bad thing. All right? So it's because you're rich. Job 19.19, he says, For he is crushed and abandoned the poor. Talking about a rich person, he has seized a house that he did not build. And then he accuses Job of being that kind of guy. Well, Job, you probably because you're rich. Bad things happen to rich people. And uh, so it just you should have seen it coming. He's a rationalist. He assumes because Job is rich, he must be greedy. And since Job is greedy, God wanted to take everything away from him. The problem with rationalization is if your first line of reasoning is bad, everything under it is bad, right? If you start off uh, at the wrong place, you'll end up at the wrong place. And so he, his assumption is that Job is greedy, and since Job is greedy, God punishes him, and uh, since God has punished him, Job should get rid of his greed. He doesn't know Job. He, he doesn't know what God said about Job. And over to the side is this interesting guy. His name is Elihu. Elihu is the youngest of all of them. He's not counted as one of Job's friends, but he overhears the conversation, and he overhears Job's response. And he's mad at Job, and he's mad at his friends. Listen, Job 32. Elihu burned with anger at Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. You see what happened? And listen to me, those of you who are suffering, this is your temptation. You will either have one of two things. You will have thoughts that come from within. Well, I should have seen this coming. Or what sin in my life caused this? Very common for people who go through suffering. What did I do to deserve this? Or you'll hear that from without. Just just this year, I shared with you that I heard that from an email. If I had walked with God and had enough faith, 
then my family wouldn't go through what we've been through. So you'll hear that from without, from within or without. Do you know what the temptation is to do? Defend yourself, right? Who do they think they are? Who do they think they are to talk about me the way they talk about me? And all of a sudden, you want to defend yourself. And when you do, you lose focus on who? God. It's a major distraction. Elihu realizes and he burns with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. Job had played into his friends' thinking. And then in verses 12 and 13 of Job 33, Elihu says this, For God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Job goes all the way back to the, Elihu goes all the way back to the reality that God may be up to something we don't know about. Is there something in your suffering? Is there something in your pain? Is there something in your situation that you can't see but that God does? Most likely the answer to that is what, church? Yes. Almost every time, yes. So I'll give an example from right here in our congregation. Several years ago, she doesn't know I'm doing this, so she can nail me afterwards, but Beth Silver went through horrendous suffering with her parents. One and then another, just like that. And it was crazy hard, just crazy hard. She sits here today, worships the Lord, loves him greatly, and longs to see her mom and dad in heaven. This past Sunday, I'm leading starting point, and there are these Folks gathered around me. And one of the persons sitting there is dealing with that with her parents. And what does she say to me? Beth Silver helped me tremendously. She's walked with me through this. I'm so appreciative of how God has used Beth. Now Beth is sitting right here. Did you see that when you were going through it? No. But you see it now. God could be up to something you don't know about. As a matter of fact, we may as well just say he is. Right? He's God. So it's possible that he's working outside of your agenda. And it's possible that he has something greater than you've ever imagined. And that's what Elihu is saying. And then Elihu speaks to the general condition of mankind. And you can't miss this. It's profound. Elihu says, man is also, so he's talked about God. He has a right view of God. That's his theology. And then he has a right anthropology. He has a right view of man. Look at this. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. Elihu says, everybody suffers. Suffering is the norm. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Sometimes suffering emaciates human beings and renders them uh, just gaunt. 
His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Sometimes, Elihu says, you'll suffer so bad you'd rather die. But this next phrase, if you write in your Bibles, in Job 33, 19 through 26, you should underline, if there be for him, that suffering man, an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. And if that person, that mediator, is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. What? If there be somebody who says there's somebody who's suffering and they're about to go down into the pit. And if that person says, hey, 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 hold up, hold up before you give up. Hold up before you lose hope. Hold up before you give in and uh, give over and, and let go. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become flesh with you, fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then if that man who was about to go down into the pit and be at the end of his rope, says, uh, praise to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. What? Eli, how could you so early on predict that one day they would look through the portals of glory and they would say, who is worthy? And that there would be a lamb that John said was slain from before the foundations of the world who would come. And he would pay the ransom so that our very worst problem would become God's greatest joy, Hebrews 12 says, to solve sin. God provided a ransom. God provided Jesus Christ. For every suffering person, the deepest struggle we have, the greatest suffering we endure is sin. And God provided Jesus Christ. And so Elihu isn't finished. In 36.5, he says, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. What does he mean by that? If God will do this, then what? If God justifies the sinner, then will he not take care of the saint? That's what he says. And then in verse 15, he says, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears to adversity. What is he saying? If God rescues the sinner from our worst problem, will he not also walk with us through our other problems? Hear me. If God rescues the sinner from our worst problems, then will he not also walk with us through all our other problems? Elihu still isn't finished. Job 37, 4 through 13, a lot of scripture. Listen as I read. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. He thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For the, to, to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. 
Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his hand or for love. He causes it to happen. So Elihu has said, if God justifies the sinner, then will he not take care of the sinner once he's a saint? He says, if God rescues the sinner from our worst problem, then will he not also walk with us through all our other problems? And third, if God keeps the universe spinning, will he not also keep your universe spinning? These are all greater to lesser arguments Elihu makes. Oh, Job, you've lost your focus. Don't defend yourself. God has already defended you. If anybody wants to argue, let him take it up with God. If anybody wants to throw theological barbs at you, let them take it up with God. So what happens? Elihu sets the stage and here's, here's who we want to be in all this, right? Elihu. Elihu sets the stage for, for God to show up. And he does. And your homework this week is to read what he says. He begins his conversation with 64 questions of Job. 64 questions. Wow. I love what Job says in 42 verse 5. Something happened. It's on your screen. I had heard of you, Job is talking to God, by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. What is he saying? Job is saying, before I suffered, I thought I knew God, but not like I know him now. Wow. 